Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Neon, the history behind pop culture. This time round we're talking about Game of Thrones and of course that's going to lead us into the War of the Roses, bet you saw that one coming, and Hadrian's Wall, bet you saw that one coming too, but did you know this is also going to involve a little bit of ancient Egyptian incest too? Well... Let's get to it, shall we? You've been here for three and a half hours. How many different ways do you want me to tell the same story? Notice anything? Unusual about Santa Carla yet? No, it's a pretty good place. I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot? As your leader, I encourage you from time to time, and always in a respectful manner, to question my logic. Now to run a computer check on this tape and the professor. Dodge this. The tracks go off in this direction. For those of you who don't know, the Game of Thrones is based on a book called Game of Thrones, The Song of Fire and Ice by R.R. Martin, George R.R. Martin, to give him his uh, full name. However, the R.R. is already a reference to a little bit of history. It's not really part of his name. It's a reference to J.R.R. Tolkien and the fact that he is the granddaddy of fantasy literature. I think we're going to have to do a podcast about Lord of the Rings at some point too. But we're on Game of Thrones at the moment, and they have been very popular books for probably 20 years now. And I know a few friends who are reading them way before the TV series, and they all agreed on one thing. They they said that it's very complicated, very dense. Quite frankly, it could do a little bit of editing, and it will never be made into a TV series. And I asked why, and they said, well, do you know what? There's an awful lot of very young girls having relations with men, and that can't possibly be shown on TV. 
But it is worth pausing on that point, not for anything creepy, but to talk a little bit about medieval society. Clearly, Game of Thrones is fantastical, but one of the things that I think it's so popular and what I like about it is that it's a drama first and fantasy stuff second. And the solution isn't whip out a wand, zap somebody with a fireball. It's usually dynastic clashes, which you can read in a book about the Tudors, the War of the Roses, or pretty much any period of history where families have power rather than political structures and democracies and things like that. But anyway, the thing is, when you do have these families of power, then your children are pawns. They are tools to be used to try and spread your influence. Queen Victoria was, if you like, one of the last people who very much bought into this and made sure that her children married into many different royal houses across Europe, leading to the fact that when World War I broke out, you had the British Emperor, and also King of Britain as well, but that's technically British Emperor, the Tsar of Russia, and the Kaiser of Germany, all being cousins. <laughs> so it's it, there's that weird mishmash. And indeed, when you start looking at medieval Europe, the amount of English kings with French mothers is quite high, and it's not just them. You know, the amount of German emperors with Italian mums. You've got Catherine of Medici being a mother to multiple French kings and obviously married to a French king as well. So women were used as pawns. Sometimes the boys were too. Uh, That whole thing about an heir and a spare, you end up having too many male offspring that can cause problems and you can get dynastic clashes that way. But if you therefore are trying to forge an alliance, marriage comes before what we would now consider, shall we say, a an adult relationship. So, for example, when King John, he's not a well-loved king of England, uh, he's remembered rather unfortunately for taxes he actually had nothing to do with, uh, but he did lose uh, all of France to uh, part, uh, all of France uh, to the, the the French king, and therefore showing that his brother was rather better than him fighting in France, etc. But anyway, 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 let's not get too hung up about this. But he married a 12-year-old. Uh, the, the amount of kings who were married to preteen girls is quite shocking. And therefore, R.R. Martin is not being inaccurate about showing that. I seem to understand that he lingers a little bit on that, but anyway, that's that's something different. Um, but the fact is that just because you married a 12-year-old does not mean that you're going to start a family anytime soon. And there was a lot of care around these young girls. And it was just not weird or unusual for that time. So therefore, that's one link between real history and the books that Martin's written. However, to make this palatable, none of that happens in the actual TV series. All the girls in question, if they are going to get married and have relations, uh, seem to be of age. They may be young, they're not maybe 30 years old, but you know, they're they're on the right side of puberty at least. Anyway, so there's one thing that actually is is sort of referencing back to uh, historical dramas and you know real history 
that's happened. The thing I want to point out about that, and I think another reason why Game of Thrones is is so good at what it does, apart from obviously budgets, budget helps, but the problem I have fundamentally with any historical drama is if it's focusing on a real person, the problem is you probably know what's going to happen next. Now, you don't have to have a degree in history to know this stuff, but when you're watching something like, for example, the TV series The Tudors, when you have Henry doing this big speech about how much he loves wife number one, well... Even when my kids were five years old, they knew that Henry VIII was the fat one who'd had six wives and had a habit of chopping some of their heads off. A gross generalisation there, but the point is, we all know he's not going to stick with wife number one. And if drama basically works with, what's going to happen next? That's a problem with historical drama. Historical drama done well can be absolutely compelling and fascinating. But sometimes historical drama, the screenwriters, are trying to use tricks that work fine when we don't know what's going to happen next, but fall short when we know the basic historical framework. So with that in mind, the great thing about Game of Thrones is nobody knows what's going to happen next. I was one of the people who came into it via the TV show rather than the book. So yes, the first five or six series were a complete surprise to me. And I had some sort of knowing sage chuckling from some of my friends who'd read them all. But they did a really good job of not spoiling it for me. Thank you very much, guys. But now we're at the point where we've gone beyond the books and Martin's actually been a little bit sniffy. Full disclosure, he said something that really annoyed me in, in, I believe it was early 2017. Uh, His latest book was meant to be out then and it wasn't. And he said, oh, I'm as upset as you all that this hasn't happened yet. I'm sorry. This, This isn't like an election you lost. This is a book you're writing. You've had nearly 10 years to write it. I appreciate I have written quite a few books and I'm actually more prolific than I thought I'd ever be. And I know many writers aren't like that and they need multiple years to write a book. And that's fine. But if you can't write a book in 10 years, that's shame on you, not shame on everybody waiting. 10 years is enough time to write a masterpiece. Okay, so Martin, just get on with it. And he has been It seems he's been a little bit sniffy about the TV series. He's made a ton of money out of it and it's sold a truckload or a few truckloads of his old books. So I wouldn't be too sniffy about it. It is great, great TV. But I think that he's basically going to wait for the TV series to be over and then he'll get back to the books because they're properly his thing. And I think that that's a whole political thing that's a bit silly. But anyway, the point is... Nobody knows what's going to happen next. And that makes it exciting history, unlike reading a book about the Tudors. Now, he has been on record by saying that this vying of dynasties is a bit like the War of the Roses. For those of you who don't know too much about the War of the Roses, you have the Plantagenet kings. This is basically from Henry II, King of England in the 1100s, all the way up to... Richard III in the 1400s, in the late 1400s, and they are, in essence, all one family. Uh, Sometimes it goes father, son, father, son. Other times there are sort of various branches, and there there were certainly wars uh, that happened prior to this. But the War of the Roses is, in essence, a dynastic war at the end of the Plantagenets between two 
parts, two branches of the family tree, which are referred to just generically as the Yorkists and the Lancastrians, even though not everybody came from York or Lancaster. Indeed, the first major battle was in St. Albans, which isn't near either of those places. Anyway, let's not get into the whole War of the Roses thing. But the end of the War of the Roses is when you have Henry VII coming in, killing Richard III. Well, he himself didn't kill him, but Richard III dies at the Battle of Bosworth, and Henry VII becomes a new founder of a dynasty, the Tudors, which are to basically last for about a hundred years. So it's it's a dynastic clash. There's lots of scheming. There's changing of sides. We've got a kingmaker in there as well, Neville the kingmaker. Uh, you know, there's just a very powerful man who knows which side to be on at any given point uh, until he dies in battle. Spoiler? Is that a spoiler? I don't know. It's 500 years old. It's hard to tell. <laughs> anyway, um, the the point is. It's a really good time of scheming and battles and dynastic clashes and clandestine operations and spying, and that makes for a good TV series if you're then going to extrapolate it. However, I don't like it when people put too much historical emphasis on the War of the Roses being linked to Game of Thrones, because the War of the Roses was fundamentally between two houses. You can argue the Tudors come in at the end, so three different houses fighting. Whereas in Game of Thrones, you got the Targaryens, you got the Lannisters, you got it just goes the Starks, blah, 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 blah. There's at least six major players, at least six major players, all fighting the Game of Thrones to see who ultimately becomes, who gets to sit on the Iron Throne, which is cool, by the way. And indeed, I believe... Game of Thrones is, if not the, then certainly one of the most expensive TV series ever filmed. And when you see some of the set pieces in like episodes or series six, seven uh, onwards, you know, some of them are like, that should just be in a movie. It's just amazing and epic. Uh, however, it's filmed all over the place. Uh, places like Malta and uh, in Eastern Europe, but also in Northern Ireland. And there was a photo opportunity and I saw the footage of this and you could just tell every person there was just crossing their fingers going, oh, please do it. Oh, please do it. Oh, please do it. The Queen, you know, Queen Elizabeth II took a trip to the set. This is bringing money into Britain. This is American cash being spent in Northern Ireland. This is a good thing. I think we can all agree. And so there is a picture of the Queen standing next to the Iron Throne. Now, this is one person who genuinely has a throne. How awesome would it have been if we got a picture of her in that throne? But I think she knew enough to know, no way am I sitting in this. It will become a meme or I'll never live it down. Or how am I trivializing uh, a thousand years of royal history if I end up sitting on this thing? Whatever, for whatever reason, she made nice noises. She paid attention to it, but she did not sit on the Iron Throne. So there we go. House Windsor falls. Uh, and and uh, let's see how, how they do in the future. Of course, one of the things about the Game of Thrones, the genius thing at the beginning is you get this sweeping view around this kind of clockwork kingdom. And that's really important because you've got to understand the geography. In history, you pretty much always have some kind of map at the start of a book because you have to assume, even if it is something about uh, something like 
The War of the Roses and an English person's reading it and it will mention places in England, that doesn't mean you know exactly where York is compared to Doncaster or something like that. So it's useful to have a map. And when you get some big sweeping fantasies, it's really interesting that in Lord of the Rings, for example, even then they managed to shoehorn little ways to show you journeys on maps. Sometimes it's fantastical, sometimes it's literally somebody looking at a map so that you get an idea of what direction they've got to go and where Isengard is in proportion to Rohan and things like that. And it's the same thing with the opening of Game of Thrones. And if you've been paying attention, you'll see that it changes over the episodes so you can start working out where new places are. But at the top of the Isle of Westeros, you have the, 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 the frozen Northlands where the wildlings are and obviously the dead army. That, that's not really a thing that happens in the War of the Roses, by the way. There's much fewer zombies in it. But anyway, 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 um, there is, of course, the wall. And again, Martin's been on record saying that he stood on Hadrian's Wall and looked out and th- just sort of imagined what it might be like being a Roman legionary sort of standing there on the edge of the empire and and obviously the wall in Game of Thrones, a bit like the dynastic clashes in War of the Roses in Game of Thrones, the wall is, is just, it's almost a character in and of itself. Uh, and this gigantic wall of ice is, is just huge. It's just gigantic compared to Hadrian's wall. But again, it it's a it's a great idea absolutely love it to death but it does mean that people think that hadrian's wall was literally this barrier and it wasn't for starters there was the antonine wall which is further north so there was actually another layer of fortifications it's basically at that narrow bit when you look at scotland and it sort of comes in it's at that most narrow bit there that's where the antonine wall is and it's not as big and impressive as hadrian's wall because it was basically abandoned and the thing about Hadrian's Wall is it was it was a frontier, but it wasn't sort of under constant attack. More than anything else, it was a way to check the comings and goings of the Caledonian tribes. It was in many ways a... If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Keep sort of tax and, and mercantile route. You know, you, you're bringing stuff into the empire. You're probably going to have to pay duty on that in some form or another. You can check whether weapons are being sent north. So in... in it, it was more to do with border control than a mighty fortification to stop the hordes and hordes of rampaging Celts coming down from the from the mountains. And so. So, yes, it's a great analogy. Um, and what's interesting is that it's one of the greatest f- Roman finds are things called the Vindolanda tablets. And they're in the British Museum. And what happened about 2000 years ago is. Romans would send brief messages to each other on these two very, very thin bits of wood. And if you can imagine, if you can put your sort of hands together and and sort of splay them out like they're wings. So you get these two pieces of wood and you write on the inside and then you slap your hands together and then you'd sort of tie it up. So it's almost like a postcard, but nobody gets to see inside it until it gets to the recipient. I mean, somebody could open it, but it's likely just to be little chit chat. And that's why they're so important. Because from things like the Roman era, we tend to get stuff from philosophers and emperors and official chronicles. Whereas this is what the little people were writing about. There is literally an invitation to somebody's party there. And that's lovely. There's somebody complaining about how cold it is and could they please send socks. Somebody else is complaining about the roads. We tend to think of Roman roads as one of the great engineering feats of the early or first century AD in Britain. But that doesn't (laughs) stop people grumbling about it. So we get a slice of real life. You get people worrying about money and you suddenly realise how, yes, this may have been the Roman Empire. Yes, this may have been Hadrian's Wall, but they were still human beings. And really, what human beings were worried about 2000 years ago is basically what human beings are worried about today. So Hadrian's Wall, good idea to stick into an epic fantasy because why not? But then we come to some of the creepier elements. Now, I this podcast does have a clean rating, so I am going to be careful here. But um, it's fair to say that there is a brother and sister who love each other perhaps a bit too much. And there is the whole thing about the Targaryens. We arrive in the story of Game of Thrones after the long-running dis- dynasty 
of the Targaryen house has fallen. And Jaime Lannister is the Kingslayer and he killed the last mad king of the of the Targaryens. And the Targaryens had the advantage of having dragons, but they had tamed them for so long that the last dragons, well, dragons are basically uh, extinct. The way people talk about dragons in Game of Thrones is the way we talk about dinosaurs. And basically they sort of bred them and to, for too long and kept them in captivity too long. So these mighty great beasts well, in, in the words of Tyrion Lannister, the last dragons were about the same size as cats. So they've kind of got, gone their way as well. There's a sort of decadent collapse, which is where I bring in ancient Egypt. And that that's a little harsh on what happened to ancient Egypt. But the, the point is that they considered the pharaoh to be holy, to be a deity in their own right. And indeed, pharaoh was such a masculine name that when you get the first female pharaoh, Hatshepsut, got to be careful on how, how to say that, um, she was round about, roughly speaking, about 1,500 BC. So we're talking three and a half thousand years ago. But what's interesting is she made sure that where well, some of the depictions of her were female, some of them were decidedly male, right up to having a beard. And she even went back to some of the earlier pharaohs and tried to feminize them to initially say to people, look, I'm not actually the first female pharaoh. Don't you remember that woman from 200 years ago? Uh, you know, wonderful bit of PR, wonderful bit of rewriting history. But the point is that uh, the the pharaoh, we, we tend to think of kings in the Middle Ages as anointed and holy and sacred. They have been chosen by God, but they're not the same thing as actual deities. And that's where people are different to pharaohs. Indeed, even something like a Roman emperor. What's interesting is, technically speaking, there was never a Roman emperor it, because it comes from the Roman word imperator, which is the Latin for successful general, which is not the same thing as emperor, which is a sort of a divine being ruling over many different lands. And indeed, when you get to people like Caligula, there are many things that got him in hot water, but one of the things that shocked people more than his horrific crimes was the fact that he started to dress as a god. You know your leader has gone a little bit above their station when they start dressing up as an actual deity. But that was fine in ancient Egypt. The pharaoh was a god in the pantheon of gods. That's cool. And because of that, when you start using that logic, obviously that means that their their blood, their life force is holy, is beyond human understanding. And therefore, it just doesn't take much of a logical step to say, well, we can't have that watered down. We can't have commoners mixing their blood and seed with, with these living deities, etc. So the solution well, why don't you marry your sister or your daughter or your aunt and keep it all in the family? There is a family tree to the ancient Egyptian dynasties. There just aren't many branches is the joke uh, that's, that, that's done its rounds a few times amongst Egyptologists. So there are many dynasties in ancient Egyptian civilization. Uh, it's interesting that when you, you know, sort of like the first five, six dynasties are barely historical. We got such little information on them 
do they even count as history? There's debate about that. But I mean, there are over 40 dynasties. And what's interesting is that when Alexander the Great came into Egypt, he was, of course, declared a God himself. But we're now talking about sort of like roughly 300 BC. So this is many thousands of years after the initial ancient Egyptian civilization came up. But he installed his general Ptolemy, which we now think of as a very, very Greek, a very Egyptian name as actually he's a Greek general. But the Ptolemaic dynasty starts with Ptolemy, give or take around about 300 BC, all the way up to give or take, about 50 BC with Cleopatra. Cleopatra was actually Cleopatra VII. She wasn't even the first Cleopatra, but she very much comes from this Greek dynasty. Now, it's nice to get an infusion of new blood into the system, and people were kind of sort of retroactively made more Egyptian by the historians and the priests, etc. So these Greeks became very Egyptian, but they continued the practice of marrying into their own family, Cleopatra herself was married to her younger brother at one point, for example, and had been married to her dad. So, um, yeah, if you think the Tigarians are bad, the ancient Egyptians took it even worse, even bigger, uh, as it were. But one of the interesting things that in Game of Thrones that, that doesn't get the same coverage as some of the sort of grander schemes and things like that is there's quite a lot of conversation about the Lannisters and how they're worried about money. And that's, that's so important in history because we tend to think of something like the reign of Queen Elizabeth I as a glory time in English history. And that's wrong. The reason why we had people like Sir Francis Drake and various privateers sinking Spanish galleys and hijacking sort of Spanish gold and all this kind of stuff, they were, they were for the record, they were pirates. Simple as that. They were pirates. They just happened to be pirates doing it for the English crown and they weren't allowed to attack English ships. But the only reason why we were doing that was because we didn't have the money to fight an actual war against Spain. Spain had all the cash. We didn't. The story of Henry VIII and Queen Mary and, and Queen Elizabeth I is largely about how broke England was as a nation. And finally, when we started getting our empire going, eventually we started making money out of it. But what's interesting is that the 13 colonies of America were a net loss. They generated debt, not money, whereas the Spanish were still ripping off South America and denuding it of its resources. You can argue about which one's morally right, but in terms of filling your coffers with gold and silver, I know which one works better rather than just having poor peasants in Virginia or somewhere like that. So the point is that there is actually quite a lot of conversation about the cost of war. Uh, there's the Iron Bank, of course, who who are worried about whether or not they should back Daenerys Targaryen because is she a safe bet? You know, there are multiple examples of banks, the Italian banks were the kind of the banking centre of Europe and about whether or not they should or shouldn't give loans to various rulers because are they a safe bet? And more importantly, are they going to pay their debts back? Looking at Edward I, very controversial ruler, but you can't deny that in the context of the time, he did a very good job of being a ruler of England and Wales and technically Scotland, but let's not go there. However, one of the things that's pretty unforgivable about Edward is he exiled the Jews of England. Now, 
as always, you have to put this into context and it's a little bit more complicated. And he certainly had no more hatred of Jews than than any, any other ruler in the time. And actually, they'd already been kicked out of places like France, for example. But the point was, the reason why he did it wasn't because of, of, of some kind of uh, horrific uh, racism, but it was actually more to do with money. He managed to get loans from various uh, from various Jewish families, and then he exiled them, which instantly meant that the loans didn't have to be repaid. It's a horrific, cynical, racist way to do it, but if you're just going to look at it from the point of the bank balance, it works. So, Game of Thrones, I'm going to argue, can teach you all kinds of things about Western feudal society, as it's also showing you dragons flying around and epic battles and an awful lot of nudity. What I find interesting about that, though, is that as the budget for Game of Thrones has grown, and it is worth going back to the very first series because there were even some mocking of how the amount of times people would walk in with like a, a muddy face and go, oh, I've just fought a very tough battle. Or in the case of Tyrion, he's standing there in a row of maybe 20 guys and they're about to charge into battle and he gets knocked over and then he gets, he wakes up after the battle and everyone tells him how big the battle was. So in the first couple of series to try and paper up the fact that they, they didn't have quite as much spectacle as they wanted, they distracted you with an awful lot of nudity. And what I find interesting is, whereas there is still some nudity now in sort of episodes, series six and seven, there's far, far less of it because they can now distract you with genuine spectacle, as it were. But I've mentioned Tyrion a few times. It's usually most people's favourite character. And I would say that a lot of people are overplaying again the whole idea of, oh, this is all basically a fantastical version of the War of the Roses. Because a lot of people have said, well, you do know what Tyrion is. Yeah, you, you know what he is. He's he's a metaphor, isn't he? He's he's Richard the Third. You know, Richard the Third was a hunchback. Richard the uh, Third, you know, had it tough. And it's the same thing with Tyrion. No, it isn't. Okay. Now, the thing, the interesting thing about Richard the Third, and and I'll, I'll just pause on him for a moment, is of course up until a few years ago, there's big debate about whether he was or wasn't a hunchback. Is this Shakespearean propaganda, or did he really have a hunchback? And then they dug up a car park in Leicester, and uh, I've done several articles on this. You know, I've got a degree in archaeology and medieval history. Okay, I've been on a number of digs. You never dig in the first place you're looking for and find what you find, what you want to find. That's Never happened in the history of archaeology. You don't just dig and instantly find what you're looking for. But that's exactly what happened with Richard III. You never uh, go to a place that had been destroyed, comprehensively destroyed, and find something completely intact. That never happens, apart from Richard III. Um, and, and so a find that shouldn't been found was found and was pretty much perfectly preserved. That is mind-blowing. But then, of course, the fact that he had a curved spine shows that he genuinely was a hunchback, so it wasn't Shakespearean propaganda. Now, that doesn't make him a good or bad person. It does amuse me when people say, oh, well, but if he had a hunchback, how did he fit into his armour? Well, I'm sorry, there wasn't a TK Max back in the 15th century. All armour was built for the person. So they just built slightly curved armor for him. That, that would have been the easiest solution to the problem. But anyway, the point is, it does show you that Richard didn't rule for very long, genuinely at a hunchback, and it all proves that 
actually what we know about him was fairly accurate, as it turns out. Let's go to Tyrion, however. Tyrion is, he may be a son of a Lannister, and he may be the brother of the Queen, technically, at the at least at the moment. But he's an advisor, and he shows no appetite in becoming king. And I think that if they do end up making him king at the end of Game of Thrones, be it the TV series or the book... That's foolish because he hasn't shown that interest. He understands his flaws and limitations. He has no desire for the Iron Throne. And in that regard, he's quite different to Richard III. And so, you know, I guess my my point at the end of this is, like all these podcasts, the idea is we can start with some pop culture and we can end up finding out some interesting, truthful facts about our past, past civilizations, interesting things from history. But sometimes people overstretch these things, and that's something I would always hope to never do. I am here to say, look, Game of Thrones gives you a flavour of what it might have been to be a royal house or an aristocratic household during, let's say, an era like the Renaissance. But it's not a perfect mirror to hold up against any specific period of time. So, on that point, I've taken you to ancient Egypt, we've been up to Scotland, we've done all kinds of crazy stuff. That's what Neon's all about. Thank you very much for listening. There will, of course, be another podcast soon. Thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.